Welcome to Relevant Parties by Carhartt Work in Progress. I'm Charles Ravens, and in this series, I'm going behind the scenes at some of the world's best independent record labels to meet the visionaries and the obsessives who've made musical history. In each episode, we sit down with one of these label founders to find out what makes them tick. We hear the tall tales and big ideas behind some of the most influential records and scenes of the past 30 years, and maybe try to work out just what possessed them to take on one of the most challenging jobs in the music industry. DFA was the label that brought two sides of the schoolyard together, the scrawny punks and the disco dancers, the indie wallflowers and the arty attention seekers. It's hard to imagine now, but New York in the late 90s was by all accounts kind of boring. Uh, But at the turn of the millennium, a handful of bands and labels came along and injected some much needed colour and fun, and not to mention sweat, back into the city's dreary underground scene. Launching with a stone-cold classic by The Rapture, DFA released tune after tune of dance floor gold, from the retro techno of the Wan McLean to the sublime disco of Hercules and Love Affair, from the tongue-in-cheek punk funk of Holy Ghost to the out-there sounds of Black Dice and Delia Gonzalez. Not to mention the famed DFA remixes from production duo James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy, and of course, one of the greatest live bands of the era, LCD Sound System. Founded by James Murphy as a conduit for his circle of friends and their bubbling creativity, the label took inspiration from New York's twin legacies of dance and punk, and bands like Liquid Liquid, The Ramones and Suicide, and Kraftwerk and Cannes from Europe. The result was a sound that defined the noughties and a changing New York, coinciding with an explosion of era-defining bands from the Strokes to the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and a shift in the city's fortunes too. Before Napster, before YouTube, DFA was one of the last important indie labels from that pre-digital era, as documented in a recent book called Meet Me in the Bathroom, Lizzie Goodman's oral history of the era, which I do refer to a few times in this conversation, and I'd highly recommend if you want some further reading. Now, James Murphy being the distant father figure that he is, I spoke not to him, nor to DFA's two other label founders, who have both since gone through their own breakups with the label. But instead, I spoke to two crucial figures who've been part of DFA since the very beginning, or even before the beginning, in fact. Juan McLean, the label's techno commander-in-chief, and formerly part of Six Finger Satellite, the band where James Murphy honed his death-from-above philosophy as a sound man and producer, and Marcus Lamkin, the Irish DJ known to us as Shit Robot, the rave guru who taught James Murphy how to dance. Juan and Marcus joined me down the line from two different continents, from the US and Germany respectively, and we got into it, talking about New York before social media, how they invented their own audience, the likelihood of another LCD sound system album, and the glorious tyranny of their longtime friend and collaborator, James Murphy. Thank you both so much for stepping in to do this on behalf of the Mighty DFA Records. I think in a lot of other situations, speaking to two artists would only give you like part of the picture, but you guys were like definitely there for like the whole thing. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that, um, that you'll have some kind of, some good perspectives and a lot of history within you. So could I just begin by getting you to just introduce each of yourselves, please? Uh, I'm Marcus Lamkin, also known as uh, Shit Robot on DFA Records. 
Juan McLean, also known as the Juan McLean. <laughs> Hello to both of you. Okay, so I thought we'd start with there's a very well known, much repeated line from from Losing My Edge, which I think in many ways is like the manifesto for LCD sound system and for James Murphy's decision to start a band and become a frontman. Um, and he's like looking at the hipsters, the young kids around him, and he's picking up on what he calls their borrowed nostalgia from the unremembered 80s. Um, and I think nostalgia is kind of important to DFA for a few reasons, because it seems to me that James and Jonathan, uh, when they founded the label, were both kind of nostalgic for the New York of suicide and liquid liquid and the Ramones. Uh, this kind of romanticized New York era in a way. But when he wrote that line, he was kind of seeing that these like younger kids were nostalgic for, for the 80s, um, wearing 80s fashions or whatever. And now the thing is, we're as far away now from the beginning of DFA as James was then from the Ramones. And um, New York is a very different place. Um, and the music industry is like completely different um, in that 20 years, I would say. So I guess I wanted to just start by asking, uh, when you two listen to music from that period, from the early noughties, um, or, or even a song like Losing My Edge, what kind of things come to mind? What, what, do you, what are you thinking of about that period in time? Uh, well, for me, it's that, that whole time was pretty crazy. That, so for me, it, it clearly is, you know, the early DFA parties, uh, Plant Bar, um, and I was... Just coming out of my 20s then, you know, it was a very, uh, I guess, crazy time. It was a very um, specific moment in time for in my period in while living in New York. So it all has a, you know, it's all tied in together with uh, the early DFA. Like I said, early DFA and Plant Bar and uh, somewhat like it is a, a very nostalgic, to, to use the same word, you know. It, um, and it was a very, uh, I don't know, I can't think like a very uh, important time for us as well, even though at the time you don't see it, you know, but looking back, obviously it's, um, it means a lot more now than it did then. How about you, Juan? Um, yeah. I, hearing you reference the state of the music industry now compared to then, <clears throat> that's the big thing that stands out for me because um, it's funny. I, I actually never related or connected to that, to, to James's um, sort of, perspective of being old when you're 30 years old <laughs> you know, it's like it just never it never occurred to me that that was some kind of um marker of you know disconnection from youth or something i i i had our, i i had played in this band six finger satellite throughout from the early 90s you know up until um the late 90s uh and so i, I you know i was heavily involved with with James as well, you know, he was our live sound engineer, um, touring, endlessly touring and making records. And, um, I was just burnt out on it and, and needed to take a little bit of a break from music in general. And, and this was, you know, pre DFA and at the advent of DFA, this was like my return to the music world. Mm -hmm. And for me, because I had already been through all of that, um, I just didn't care about anything resembling commercial success or fitting into any kind of scene or anything like that. 
it was um it was strictly uh you know like doing whatever we wanted um with no regard for commercial success basically and at that time there was no obviously there was no social media and there was barely an internet um so it was to me this the nostalgia that i have now for that time is this kind of magical time of uh having like our own little scene that at first nobody really knew about it was all word of mouth and that made it seem you know really special um and i find that really disappointing and upsetting and disconcerting now yeah it was very uh, that you can't different. really do anything without everyone in the world knowing about it yeah absolutely like i think that's that's probably i mean dfa the scene around that and any other kind of scene from that moment would be some of the very last music scenes to be able to just develop in their own petri dish yeah you know, and become their own thing, develop their own sound with its own kind of internal, like locations and, and networks without being kind of monitored by the outside or, or immediately kind of going huge. And that's in New York, which is like a huge global city. Yeah. And it sounds as if you still managed to find some kind of localism to it. It definitely sounds to me as though uh, it's a label that was like built on friends and acquaintances like an actual social group rather than like you know james decided to have a label and then he had to go and find some bands is that is that right that like a lot of the musicians were kind of already in some kind of group together at the time it was that 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 was actually the only intention of the label in the beginning was that it was a collective of friends and and actually beyond the scope of you know thinking of it as a as a record label. It was just simply a collective of people making stuff. And there, and the, and then the records were kind of incidental. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was parties. It was like parties yeah. about hanging out and, you know, um, it, it, exactly that. It was just friends and nobody, you know, nobody knew. Even the, like the first parties we were doing were just word them out, you know, and you, like you could barely get a couple of hundred people together at a party and we would, you know, um, Phil Plant Bar or something like that, you know, which was, you know, a couple of hundred people max and literally all word of mouth and all friends. And it was only, I think it was really only, uh, like the, the Warsaw gig with, with Juan and the Rapture in 2000, where it really just, that's when it started to like explode and take off and go outside of our little, you know, a little small little gang kind of. Um, Marcus, when did you first meet James? Oof. I, I don't, I'm not even sure, to be honest with you. It would have <laughs> been whenever I have to, we were always talking about trying to get together to do the timeline. It would have been, I think, 97, I'm guessing. I'm not sure. And you'd already been in New York for quite a while, right? Yeah, I moved to New York and I think like it was 92. Yeah, and then we sort of, yeah, it would have been 96, 97. I forget exactly when. It was a little bit before Plantain started. I remember, like Tyler, we got introduced to Tyler, who was the guy who owned the building that that DFA was in, and uh, and Plantain was like the name of the studio, right? Yeah, it was the studio and the building. It was also a a, a movie post production place. They had editing suites and a screening room. Um, 
yeah, they did uh, like Darren Aronofsky's first movie came out of there. And, um, yeah. And that was where we had the first parties. And I run, I started plant records with Dominique Keegan out of there also. And that's how I met James properly was what I started there to work there running the label and sort of I'm a cabinet maker also by trade and I was helping take care of the place and and build some stuff and generally fix things so so but at that time then Marcus you were uh so you'd gone to America you got a green card right you got like a green card lottery uh yeah win won won a green card in the lottery so I guess you kind of went not really knowing how long you would stay or what you were going to do there necessarily no my initial plan was to give it a year and uh, and see how it went you know but i was you know i was 22 you know not a current i was originally supposed to go to san francisco and i was sort of stopping off to stay with a cousin for a little bit in new york and then make my way there and just never left and then juan you met james maybe even before that right yeah i met him um (laughs) Wow, I, I'm having a hard time remembering <laughs> all this stuff now with, um, in terms of years, but it was probably, uh, 1988 or 89 wow. when, um, James was at NYU. Uh, and I, I had a good friend who had gone to NYU, who was going to NYU, um, and I was visiting him. I think it was his first year there. So yeah, it was probably like 88, 89. Um, and I was in his dorm room and he said, uh, oh, you should meet this guy that lives upstairs. Like he has a four track because I, I, you know, I'd gotten into like multi-track recording when I was in high school using a four track and tape delays and things like that. Um, yeah. And that's, I, I, I do remember pretty vividly that that was the sentence that started it, which was, oh, you should meet this ga- guy, James. He has a four track. <laughs> um, and then, I, I, and then I, 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 yeah, I don't know what the trajectory was immediately after that, but sometime in the, in the late eighties. It's quite reassuring to think that at some point, James Murphy just had a four track, you know, like from small acorns. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, but then he was like the sound man for your, for your, he was the live sound man for six finger satellite, your band, right? Right. Yeah. So we spent, um, a lot of time in, uh, you know, driving around, for months at a time on tour in a van, <laughs> which is probably where it really like um, all of this stuff germinated, I think, because James and I, you know, as it is with bands and touring parties, like they pretty quickly break up into little factions for better <laughs> or worse. I mean, I think ultimately usually worse. Um, so it was always <laughs> James and I and we'd sit sit in the back of the van, like talking about recording and synthesizers and equipment and uh and both of us were getting into like deeper into electronic music um which i think at the time kind of irritated some of the others in the band (laughs) but surprisingly maybe or maybe not surprisingly it was a lot of like idm stuff at the time Mm. and and a lot of kind of ambient stuff like there was a panasonic or they became pansonic uh oval or um yeah, uh, like like stuff like that, or Aphex Twin, obviously. Yeah, that's funny because that's you know quite divorced in terms of electronic music from where a lot of DFA would go. Like it doesn't necessarily match up to the kind of idea of having like I don't know even even the prevalence of like four on the floor kick drums in DFA is 
is quite a leap away from like Aphex Twin of the late 90s or something. Um, but I guess it probably seemed yeah. pretty refreshing maybe from being in a, a, a punk rock band essentially to have something new to think about musically. Yeah, it 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 was very refreshing, but also Six Finger Satellite was, you know, um, we, from the beginning, it used, had a lot of like electronics in the band. Like I played guitar and also had like a, synthesizer rig that i kind of copied from um keith levine who was the guitar player in public image limited at the <laughs> time um actually i pr- had pretty much his same setup <laughs> with a aluminum aluminum neck guitar and a, um, and a profit synthesizer going through a tape delay and things like that uh so it was like we were super into bands that kind of straddled those worlds especially craft work was a huge early influence. Um, and of course, Kraftwerk would maybe arguably be like the biggest influence on, you know, the germination of Detroit techno. So that's how, that was kind of like my, uh, that's how I heard about techno really was like being into Kraftwerk and then, um, hearing that there were these, you know, there, there was this other kind of, music that it was informing like when I was in high school or whatnot I'd like to get a bit of a picture of James from the outside which seems to be the only way that anybody gets a picture of him from my research um I've been watching uh, I watched the short documentary and I read meet me in the bathroom and reading lots of different interviews and stuff and it's kind of funny how different people describe him. Um, uncompromising was one I came across. There was a great description in the short documentary where Chris from the label was saying that he was like a traveling salesman dad because he's like always away, always touring. Um, but in a sense, like, like his presence always seems to be felt, right? Like that's, that's what's happening right now. Like I am talking to you about, about his label. Um, and I guess I, I just want to get a sense of, of what he's, he's like as a character and particularly in what ways all three of you might have influenced each other in those kind of early years of germination for DFA, like before LCD sound system. How did he impact your lives? Um, well, I think, you know, Juan has a much older history to, than me, and f- and for me, it was uh, it was very different because I don't didn't have, I don't have a musical background, and but but I was uh, a DJ guy. I was like doing do acid house in the late eighties and nineties, and then I went to New York, being like the rave DJ guy. So we we sort of hit it off on like I was. He like when I met James, he like he hated dance music and wasn't in other than like what the stuff Juan was saying, you know, referencing like Aphex Twin and stuff like that. But general, you know, he, dance music then to him was was MTV and and uh, CNC Music Factory and stuff like that. So I was sort of playing him good, what he thought dance music, decent dance music. And getting very excited, playing him this, that, and the other. And then he was, he just kept referencing. He, he just kept pulling out every, every, my, one of my favorite records. He knew what the sample was and he was playing me all the all rock records. So he was introducing me to the music and the punk stuff, like, like Six Finger Satellite, all the stuff that Juan and him could reference. He taught me that. And then I was in turn playing him dance music and I kind of got him into the whole DJing part of it and got him into the, the kind of dance thing and he could sort of, cause I think with Juan and, and James's background being in punk bands, you know, growing up in punk bands, you, you didn't dance. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was, that was done, you know? So, uh, I think that was my role in the, you know, 
in, in the whole in the whole part of it was um yeah introducing him to dance music getting him to you know be able to you know have a bit of fun let the hair down and then he basically educated me and you know pretty much everything i know about you know music and music production and that whole world of uh like the, the one was just talking about mm-hmm. and one he of course introduced me to one also one what else can you tell us about james's kind of force of personality in shaping dfa well something that i think remains true to this day is that um for better or worse with james it's you you do things james's way and uh and, it, and when it works it's amazing you know it's brilliant and and i and marcus like we happen to work well with him in that context like for example you know when i go into the studio with james i think just because we've known each other for so long like i am pretty comfortable with him um you know if we, if we were working on one of my tracks in the studio um i'm i i'm not offended by him muting three quarters of the, tra- <laughs> yeah, the tracks yeah, yeah. in my yeah. in my song and 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 uh and and just kind of like tearing things apart and 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 he'll build things his way yeah and there's no other way and that's the way that you get um so i i think in a sense of like james kind of discovered that as a classic producer guy that might go around like producing other bands like it it it, it that system doesn't really work very well um but it it worked you know amazingly well for this collective of friends in, in, in DFA. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's the thing, even like running the label in all, all areas aesthetically, it's all kind of done James's way, (laughs) which I I was going to say that makes him sound a bit like a tyrant. And, and then I was going to make a case for that not being true, but it it actually is true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then Marcus like, yeah. And and Marcus was in, for both James and I are kind of like, especially even in a technical way in the beginning was our like entrance into like DJ world. Like I had turntables, but I, I didn't know what someone was doing when they DJed like mixing records or whatnot. Mm. Yeah. In a way it sounds like the cast of characters that were the nucleus of early DFA, everyone had quite a necessary role as much as we're saying it was the sort of James Murphy show. There are clearly many people who made you know an impact to a greater or lesser degree that that would have made dfa quite different without them i was thinking about uh so jonathan galkin who for until very recently was the label man manager you know he is the person who is doing all of the other things right he is the person who has got like the spreadsheet and the orders and all of these things which you actually need to make a label run there's a line in the like <laughs> documentary about him being like a, a jewish mom where, yeah. oh, that's how he described himself and like if you don't have someone like that then your label you know no matter how cool it is is only going to last like two years right mm-hmm. um not that it sounded like the most o- well organized label ever that ever ran <laughs> yeah that's fair <laughs> yeah. um yeah. And then you have uh, Tim Goldsworthy, who is James's partner in the DFA as a production partner, who just sounds like the complete opposite of everybody else, like the complete opposite in personality and kind of eventually even in in the music as well, like being this like quite sort of British sort of like not really, you know, just not really that into it kind of guy, like being a bit sort of standing in the corner and stuff. And this is such a... To, you know, in retrospect, it sounds like such a strange combination of 
personalities. Um, can you tell us a bit about what it was, what those kind of, what those early months and years were like in terms of people gelling together and like, where did, where did the wheels come off in terms of like that early nucleus not working? Because to me, it sounds like those people almost never should have worked together. No, well, they worked at first they worked together really well it was a great i think for like you put like you say in the same sense of like they were so different they were so you know and yet like james and tim were very different personalities but yet they hit it off together musically on a really great level they were you know they worked kind of perfect together like you say like yeah it is and 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 i think tim's reservedness and britishness worked well in that sense that he was he was happy to sit back for a while and let james come in and into the studio and be the tornado and tear everything apart and fix it up and tim would sit there and meticulously program things and james james could leave and he would fix stuff up and noodle and twiddle and or even you know sometimes he would spend whatever days programming one sound and then james would come in and build them and then he would james would record everything arrange mix and bang it out you know and for a while that worked really well until like i said that sort of thing where james became the went until lcd took off and then when james wasn't there so much you know when he sort of he would still do the same thing but he'd be gone for two weeks and then show up, go down the studio and bang, bang, bang and didn't have time for any of the other nonsense or whatever some people would say or he was just very matter-of-fact about it and in and out. Mm-hmm. And then that didn't go down too well. But personality-wise, for a while, it was, yeah, they, they strangely enough, worked together very well. They had very similar tastes. I think they both got along. They both had, you know, um, similar taste in music and worked very well off each other. I think also it's... um Kind of the classic case, I, I mean, with everyone involved in that mix, like, you know, you had the rapture mm-hmm. around me. Now, like, people playing in LCD, like, it, at, at the point where it was not just James in the studio, you know, there was a, a, a band behind it. Um, and this whole cast of characters, I think it's, and, and all of us blew up so quickly in this way that um, none of us had anticipated. And I think it really came down to... Um, what I think of is this classic thing of ego that's like everyone secretly believes that they're <laughs> the reason. They've played the role behind the success of whatever thing is happening. Um, and I think there were a lot of battles of, you know, some people were up front maybe taking success for everything and it, it bred all this resentment for others in the background. And, and to me, that's what blew up. Whatever conflicts came down the road, that was the yeah, the key. That was the, that was where it germinated. Yeah, for sure, James became the face of DFA uh, because he had a buzz of LCD, and, and then all the, the like you said, the, the resentment started. Tell me a bit about what you were both doing at that moment when the LCD was starting to take off. Because I guess Marcus, you maybe weren't quite making records yet. No, I, wa- I wasn't. No, I was just still DJing. I was DJing away. I had a couple of parties. I we had Plant Bar. Yeah, I was pretty much just just DJing and 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 at Plantain. And at some point, I remember at one point I got totally burnt out as well after a while, and, and I quit the DJing for a while and went back to cabinet making for a bit. But most for most of the time, 
back then. I was starting to sort of play around a little bit. James was sort of taking me under his wing and he was like, lent me a 909 and a delay pedal and said, go, said, go play with that. You know, I was sort of starting to dip my toes in a little bit, but I was, I was obviously very intimidated with, with, you know, being surrounded by all those guys and, and not knowing the first thing about music. It was, uh, I was sort of very hesitant to get involved. Um, but yeah, at that time I was just DJing pretty much. Juan, what were you up to? You'd already released, I guess, well, you were one of the early releases on the label, right? The first, I believe. Yeah, I was, I was the second. The Rapture House of Jealous Lovers 12-inch was the first. And That's then you. Mine was... But um, they came out together, right? I don't know, like a month later. More, more or less the same time, really. Um, but that was 2002. And in 2002, I was uh, teaching, in name, teaching <laughs> um, English in a like juvenile detention facility. So for me, all, all this music stuff and like return to music production and whatever was, uh, it was kind of like a, a hobby. I didn't really have any expectations of it beyond like just that I loved doing it. So I would like, I had a little home studio. I had like the very first iMac that was the little bubble one that was, you know, came in different colors. And then I had <laughs> an early sampler and a couple of synths and, and, and that was about it. And that's how I made, like all my first records on that little setup. So I, I, and I had a kid, like we had just had, um, a baby, my, well, he was born in 99. So I spent for me making music in that time period was like, I'd go and I'd, I'd go to work and break up fights all day. And it was just total insanity. And then I'd come home, you know, and, and between the time of like eating dinner and trying to, you know, stay awake, not fall asleep with a a baby on my lap. I'd sit at my little studio, like trying to make this music. Wow. It was really weird. And then, and then I remember I would, um, when my records started coming out, like, you know, on my, after work one time, just going to like a bookstore and looking through music magazines or electronic music magazines and seeing like reviews of my records or like it being in some DJ's chart or something. And it, you know, or someone in Japan was, and it was, it was a really, it was kind of a surreal experience for me. Like I was living these two very different lives. Um, were you not making your record in the Plantain recording studio then? Yeah, I would do like the basic stuff at home and like, you know, come up with tracks and then I'd bring them to New York um, and work on them with, you know, finish them there with James and Tim, I see. which could be, you know. Something that should have taken like three days would take three months. <laughs> where where were you living? Yeah. Were you in Rhode Island? No, I was in uh, very southern New Hampshire. Um, uh, and then at Plantain, the building we've been talking about where they have the DFA studio and the film studio, it was this big, like massive, like three-story building with uh, the studio in the, in the basement in the West Village. Um, so there was always a place for me to sleep there. So I, I'd go back and forth and just stay there. Um, which was a little dark. Like, you know, a lot of times I sleep in the studio in the basement and there's no windows down there. Anything, so. <laughs> Lots of times wake up at four, not know if it was 4 a.m. or 4 p.m. and that kind of thing and, and sit around and work in the studio and wait for James and Tim to show up. We have to talk about this building as well because uh, I was thinking about, I mean, obviously New York has changed so much and the music industry and whatever, but like from what I can gather... Somebody called Tyler Brody bought a huge house in the West Village and kind of 
I think, funded most of the beginning of DFA because there was the recording studio. And then you got to just like have that space, which it just kind of, it just boggles the mind to think of artists being kind of given space in that way now. But what, what was the deal there? Because Tyler was like, uh, almost like a sort of friendly trustafarian character, I guess, right? He just wanted yeah. to use some money to do something creative, almost Pretty no much. strings. Pretty much. Not, no, no strings. I mean, he was a, he's a, partner in, in in dfa some strings yeah yeah so uh no he he was pretty much like you say a trust of fire and it wasn't a, it wasn't a house it was like a, i think it was originally a car park or oh. of some sort building there was one of those that had a huge freight elevator in the middle of it and um yeah but he put a lot of money into it built this amazing creative space like i said it, it was a film post-production company he was really into film james already had a studio but it was in in brooklyn at the time, and so he had talked James into becoming partners with him, I guess, and bringing his studio there. And he wanted to have a film production company, he wanted to have a recording studio, and he wanted to have a record label all under one roof. And people just coming together, you know, sort of, yeah, like I said, like kind of funding, you know, just a create a really cool creative space, which like back then was, you know, I didn't wasn't that much of it going around, you know, yeah. Right. Um, it was kind of it was a really incredible, amazing, amazing place and an amazing time. Yeah, I always thought. I always think Tyler doesn't get enough credit. Yeah. If, if it weren't for Tyler, None like, of it would happen. so much of the stuff w- just wouldn't have happened. I mean, who knows if in what fashion it, it would have happened, but it wouldn't have happened the way that it did. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, even the film stuff, like Marcus said, like Darren Ar- Aronofsky's like first few films were, yeah. were done there. Pi and Requiem, uh, I think, it, were both. Yeah, it was just an amazing, it was like the ultimate clubhouse basically and it was a beautiful building it was yeah. incredible inside um in the west village you know in like <laughs> one of the nicest areas of yeah and in the uh, upstairs Manhattan. there was like two two floors there was two floors it was open up there was a balcony around it and then there was a, a screening room so like it, it was a remote control screen came out of the ceiling and you could watch you could they could screen movies there which we like we're playing Nintendo on every day at like five five o'clock. We were making drinks and and playing Nintendo. Um, so it was just yeah, it was just this, just crazy. We had these we had amazing parties there, but yeah, and it, and they had this insane studio in the basement, you know. And it was just friends coming by, hanging out, and uh, and making music. I think it it says a lot about how cities and just economies economics is just fundamental to how art is actually made and imagined you know it's not enough to have people say let's make this kind of music a lot of other things have to fall into place um i also came across some information about i think it was a a dot-com entrepreneur of some kind just before the dot-com bubble burst made some kind of deal to have a party at plant bar and paid something like ten thousand dollars so that DFA could buy a sound system or that the plant bar could have a sound system. Is that also true? Because again, that's just like money flying everywhere. You're very <laughs> vague. And there was a lot of crazy stuff like that going on at the time. Mm. There was this uh, dot com bubble. And I, pre- I that could be right. Yes, there was a lot of things like that going on where we were getting stupid amounts of money to do ridiculous things. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm very vague on the details. But yeah, that might be the, you know, yeah, we, but I mean, James, I mean, we, we did get a, a James Murphy DFA sounds, but it was it wasn't crazy expensive, you know. But there was um yeah, there was a lot of He's, silly things going on. The place getting bought out for a night by Yahoo's to do whatever and we would go DJ and get paid silly amounts of money and then you know. He's got a more expensive sound system now anyway. 
<laughs> yeah, he definitely does, yeah. <laughs> so at the beginning of DFA, I guess as well as being a crew and a sort of sound system and a and Tim and James doing remixes in theory and all of this stuff. The, the beginning purpose of it as a label uh, was basically to release House of Jealous Lovers. That seemed to take a, quite a long time, I guess. Like they, there was a lot of kind of record label industry stuff that slowed it down for a while by the sounds of it. Um, so in my mind, age-wise, um, I was not in clubs when House of Jealous Lovers came out, but I do remember it as a, a young teenager and being just completely in love with it. And, you know, in from a perspective of not really having any context for it, just thinking, well, this is a great song but you know as I grow older and think more about how it fitted in contextually it obviously stuck out a lot at the time it, it must have done um can you tell me a bit about like what was the effect of of that particular track in New York because it does I get the impression that it was kind of a an important moment or an important musical kind of turning point for for the scene it turned everything on its head like it was be- before that it was because I was DJing a lot at the time and I was resident in, you know, we had Plant Bar, but I was, I was resident in a place called Centrefly, which was this, you know, she-she, you know, high-end, awful, awful New York club with like, you know, <laughs> bottle service and, you know, but it paid the bills, you know, so I would play there and, and but it was like, the it, like house music had become like the worst version of itself. It was really terrible and stale and boring and, there was just nothing happening, you know. It was really uh, not great. There was a few things that were okay, but it was at, it was at a time when it was, you know, like naked house. It's like hotel house we used to used to call it. So it was like, you know, just the most boring what they would call now deep house vocals or whatever. But it was still pretty generic. There was nothing exciting happening, you know. And then came this thing that was, you know, it was wasn't just that like. You know, there was other rock records around, but they, you, you couldn't play them in a club sound system. Like, as the Jealous Lovers sounded great in a club system next to a dance record with, with huge low end, you know, and you could drop it in and people, everyone, you know, we would have guests there, people like Felix the Housecat, like, you know, when back then he was huge, he was one of the biggest, you know, DJs around at the time from his records at the time. And like, you know, everyone that came by would be, would be dropped like peak set in the middle of house or techno or whatever you were playing. And it would, you know, house of jealous lovers. And it was the only record that sounded like that. And, uh, yeah. And it was really like, it really was the, the, the start of a, a huge change. In the, uh, meet me in the bathroom book, which I don't know how you, I don't know how you kind of feel about it reading through. Maybe we could talk about that in a minute. Cause that's a kind of funny, but there's this amazing description pieced together from different people's memories of, um, James's first ecstasy experience. Um, and there's this great line where he says, like, I had a revelation that, uh, that this, you know, this is all real. This isn't just like the drugs that are making me enjoy myself because it's the drugs stopping me from stopping myself from dancing. And, you know, that's just one person's experience. But actually, what then kind of happens, I think, is is really a big deal for like somehow bringing these two streams of like indie rock and dance together in a way that certainly in America probably wasn't, you know, they just weren't in the same headspace at that time and maybe never had been really. Um, and that's, you know, that's what DFA, it, the shorthand with DFA, or despite the variety of records on the label, the shorthand is 
those two things, you know, dance, punk, indie, disco, putting those mm-hmm. two things together. Um, so I was kind of curious as, as to, you know, when this sound was developing and when everyone was getting excited about the idea of like bringing back these kind of two streams and just making sounds that were exciting in that way, more cowbell. Like, who did you think your audience was or like was there an audience like because if the if the clubs were kind of lame at that point and if the rock bands were also quite lame at that point who were your people from my perspective there was like in the early days there was kind of no consideration for an audience that might have already been there <laughs> um and and it wasn't to say it's not to say that um that it was done with this kind of like there, it wasn't a direct attempt to sort of be confrontational or go against whatever was mainstream or, or something. And, and, and in fact, I think it was, it had lots of conversations with James about this at the time. It was more like once people s- see how great this yeah. is, they'll be convinced. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, like, like there's no reason this shouldn't be something that everyone else is into or certainly like a lot of people would be into, but there was really no, it was so different than now. There was no, um, now I I think of everything as like so stratified in terms of genre and you make this very specific kind of music. Then there's these specific clubs that you play in and there's the same like group that comes, it's your audience and it's the same sounds and all that kind of stuff. And even I like just a large extent in, in that sort of that, that world, like that's the world we're living in. But back then it was like, there was no, uh, I, there was no audience really like to aim it at, you know, we just knew like James and I were so disenchanted, more than disenchanted. Like I just kind of hated like what indie rock had become because it had started as this insane thing of yeah. like, you know, I'd be, I was 16 and I go see like early Sonic youth and the swans and big black and the butthole surfers and these kinds of things. And it, it was just lunacy, like people lighting themselves <laughs> on fire and, you know, like crazy sounds and like, like hearing music that you literally, you had never heard anything like it before. Um, and, it, and then by the time I kind of got out of it, it had become like people from Ivy League schools who, for <laughs> some reason, James and I always said, who wore sweaters. <laughs> you know, it was very safe and just uninteresting. And we knew, like, it was kind of like a fuck you to that. And also to, like, just not having fun and not fun as a frivolous thing. I, I, I think of it as a more visceral thing, like a body thing. Like, we just weren't interested in playing a kind of music that you'd look out and it was just a bunch of dudes standing with, there with their arms folded looking at you. So it was at the same time, like not aimed at an audience, but with this lofty ambition that we're going to make the best records we possibly can. And if you do that, it'll find mm. an audience. Mm. But there was nothing, there was just no, like Marcus said, like I remember James and I going somewhere to some club that was like a kind of conventional house music club say like i don't know 2000 or something year 2000 and we were on the guest list because someone was playing there that was cool um and i remember there was a line down the block and walking to the front of the line and everybody's like dressed up yeah like super dressed up and wearing like ripped t-shirts and jeans and just dirty and literally like every people just looking at us like what the fuck are these guys doing <laughs> and it was that kind of thing like a, a social thing where um it 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 just was such a different time um and yeah i i guess 
it, it didn't feel like there was an audience already there that we were aiming at. But at the same time, I mean, there was electro clash that was happening, right? But but that wasn't <laughs> somehow. Why were those not your people? Or maybe some of them were. That sort that, but that sort of came de- after almost. I mean, yeah, that came with that. That came post that. That's what started. It started growing f- from that. Nothing from that directly, but you know, at, at this time, it all started. Um, yeah, and it started like I said the first at first. I mean, the clubs were were still generic, but you would hear this music in between. You would hear like Vitalik thrown in a little bit, and then at places like like Plant Bar, it would be that all night, and you'd have ESG and Liquid Liquid mixed with DFA stuff and Fat Truckers and and Vitalik and house music. Like we were playing, we were still playing house music at the same time, but it was growing. And then you'd start with they had places like Plant Bar playing this stuff, and then yeah, you had the kind of and. People like Felix the Housecat again, you know, sort of turned, came, started coming into this electro clash scene, and then it started in little pockets where you would have places like Flatbar. You go to Tribeca, you could go, or other places would start having nights like that. And then there was like Justine D was doing. I mean, she'd been doing her stuff for years, which was more strictly indie indie rock, which started to cross over, and then and then yeah, I guess then at some point the electro clash kind of exploded, and then you had. For sure, you had a, a big scene, but that sort of came slowly. I, I remember sitting in the DFA office one time and having—I don't—I don't remember who was there, but a bunch of us having this uh, conversation that was very clearly like, "We have to make sure that we have nothing to do with this fucking electro clash <laughs> thing, and that we're not associated with it." And it—and it's so funny to say this now, yeah. but it was like we're in Manhattan, in that Brooklyn. Those people in Brooklyn doing that shit is like. It, it's bullshit and we have to make sure that we're not like lumped in with that somehow <laughs> and then somehow it was like but the thing that's cool in brooklyn is a uh, metro area yeah um and that was a huge like su- being side by side with metro area that, from the beginning um, was huge but i think electro class just seemed so kind of like just kind of like dumb not thought out like surface level thing yeah just wasn't good yeah. we thought at the time but there was stuff that i liked but in in hindsight there still is some stuff i like but um tell me a little bit uh Juan, tell me a little bit about your kind of trajectory here because i guess you were being pretty productive i mean there are there are lots of records and then soon after marcus you're releasing from is it like 2005 or 6 roughly so yeah something like that yeah tell me about your kind of individual trajectories and kind of how you were working on your own music while being under the increasingly flashy DFA lights because you know by sort of 2003 4 and certainly you know as someone who grew up in the UK DFA was massive like huge for me personally for sure um I definitely grew up with people like um you know someone like Errol Alcan would be one of my big like gateway DJs right Mm. um how did you kind of find uh, a niche like staying within the DFA kind of style and aesthetic and, and manifesto but actually being able to do what you you personally wanted to do as well I for me it was um you know I had made my first two 12 inches I, I think maybe they both came out in 2002 uh and I, I was constantly producing music and I think somewhat early on you know James suggested like you know you should we should make an album, which is something I, ha- I hadn't considered. Uh, so it was this confluence of then making an album 
which was done sort of with the intention of playing it live at some point, which is another thing I, I, I hadn't considered. I thought it would just be DJing. Uh, and alongside with that, after just two 12 inches, I was, I signed a publishing deal that was, it was some ridiculous amount of money for me, for me, ridiculous amount of money at the time. And it, it was like two years salary teaching basically was the first advance. To be clear, like that's because of DFA's deal with EMI, right? That's not because DFA were giving you loads of money. No, it was my own separate publishing deal. Oh, like, I it, see. So there's not the EMI deal. Okay. Yeah, it, 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 it's outside of your recording contract. Um, so I signed this thing and got this advance. And I was like, you know, I could, why am I teaching? <laughs> like, you know, I could, I, I'm DJing making like as much in a night DJing as I make all week teaching, at least. Like, why am I doing this? And I, I just made the decision to like jump off the cliff. Because I, I had the sort of foundation of this money in the bank to last me for a bit, um, which led to my pretty quickly getting divorced. Um, it, it kind of blew my life up in the best ways, I would say, because I, I just committed myself all over again to just living um, a life of music. And I, I think it's kind of like the formation, you know, playing live provided like this framework for everything that I was doing. And that my, my first live, well, actually, the very first time I played live was the Warsaw gig that Marcus was talking about, which was, was that like 2003, maybe? Um, yeah, I can't remember. I think I said that. So, yeah, it was ah, certainly 2003. It was at this huge Polish club in, in, in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. And, um, oh, that kind of Warsaw in Greenpoint. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the, the name of the yeah, club okay. was uh, <laughs> Warsaw. And there's probably like a thousand people there. I mean, it, it, it was huge. And that was, me, James playing drums, and then Nancy, I don't even think she was singing at the time. I don't know, just playing keyboard or whatever. Um, but then it became me, um, Jerry Fuchs on drums, and uh, Tim Goldsworthy was the other one. So it was the three of us. <laughs> and we went with LCD on this tour of, I, I don't remember where, the UK and Europe somewhere, like pretty early Warsaw, on. Warsaw was 2000, uh, actually. 2000? Yeah. yeah. It was, it, it was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that, that provided, I don't know, that, that kind of like provided this framework for my life, which is like going on tour live, DJing and making records. And um, I always felt, I, I felt like people had like their kind of, you know, identity within the label. And mine was kind of like, I, I actually was never, as the guy who had come out of playing in a post-punk band, I wasn't really that interested in sounding like that. Mm. Like uh, House of Je Jealous Lovers to me was not, <laughs> I guess I can say this now, like I, I never particularly liked it <laughs> and I still don't really. <laughs> like it's not, it's just not, never resonated with me. That side of DFA. Is it too much cowbell? was not really, no, it's just like that kind of like, I, I was more into like just straight on techno, like early Detroit techno. A lot yeah. of stuff Marcus had actually turned me on to. Um, like basic channel I discovered um, like a lot of dub techno stuff. And I, I was super into that. Cause I was always really into sound. Yeah. And I feel like my, it, you know, I was kind of like identified early on, especially by Tim Goldsworthy of like, you're going to be the techno guy at DFA and James too, you know, they, that's how they 
approached me. So I was never like, I, I, you know, I was never a disco DJ, like everyone else at DFA was super into disco or that kind of thing. And, um, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't hard for me to navigate, you know, in that world of DFA and have my own identity. It was really hard to have that. Uh, it was really hard to, 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 um, convey that to the outside world. Like, you know, I would go on these long tours, like DJing and show up somewhere and they just always book me with these DJs who are playing like House of Jealous yeah. Lovers or like, you know, post-punk, disco, whatever, and, and think that that's what I was going to mm. do. And, and if you looked at the music I was making and all the stuff, like I, it, it actually was not anything I was doing or I was interested mm. in. So it did become this, the outside pressure was really difficult. And I feel like I fought against it for years and years. Yeah, Marcus, did you have a, a similar issue in a sense as, you know, being an, an additional kind of techno uh, t- techno adjacent producer when you did start producing? How did you how did you find it, like finding your own, carving out your own identity within a, a DFA banner? Yeah, it, it was exactly the same. Like, you know, it was exactly like what Juan said. You, yeah, everywhere you would go, it would be, you know, the DJ before we'd be playing the LCD back catalog and, and, and disco punk. And we'd be like, I'm going to play house and techno. I don't know what I'm going to do now, you know? So yeah, it was a bit, it was, although I, well, I don't think it was as hard for me, you know, because I came along a lot later and my first record was a bit of a, it was a, 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 a bit different than the usual, you know, it was even more techno, I guess a little bit. I don't know if you call it techno, but whatever. But it was still the same thing. You were getting, it was like you were thrown in with new disco and, you know, and playing these, all these parties, which was like, oh God, what am I going to play here? You know, it was a little strange at first. It was a bit of like a, like a, like a bit of a battle at first for a while because, because, because DFA was so big and it had this huge, big umbrella. Yeah. That we were oftentimes pigeonholed into the, the disco punk mm. continuously. It should be noted that you are in Germany these days and you moved to somewhere near Stuttgart quite a while ago, right? How, how many years ago did you leave New York? A long time. I left, uh, we left in 2005, I think, the right. end of 2005, yeah. Um, could you could you explain a bit about kind of why you left and how you've managed to kind of keep a, keep one toe in the waters, if you like, because I am also aware that you live in a castle, um, but you've been very productive <laughs> in the castle and released lots of techno records. So I guess it must be conducive to thinking about dancing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was the yeah, it was. I mean, I've had a very different trajectory, you know, than, than one or most other DFA artists, as though I sort of came. It's not at the end because it's been over. But sort of at that time when Juan and James were getting really popular and busy, I was at, I was still hadn't even produced then. I was still a DJ and like playing around a little bit with reason and a little bit, you know, sort of picking up on how to program a drum machine or whatever. But I was still DJing and I had actually gotten tired of it. And I'd been DJing for, you know, like I started like early 90s. And at this point, 2005, I was like worn out and I had residencies. In, like I'd been DJing as a job for years in New York. I had we had plant bar for a couple of years and I was like burnt out. And I was sort of done at this point. And things like James was traveling a lot. You know, it's sort of on the come down part of the electro clash and the whole DFA you know, burst to scene in, in New York. And then I sort of, I'd quit DJing and gone back to the day job and was sort of 
having a wine. I was just like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And then, yeah, my, my wife is, is German and we met in New York, but, she, but she's from here and she wanted to kind of wanted to move back home. And similar to as I moved to New York, we were kind of like looking around. We were sort of feeling that we I wasn't utilizing New York at this point. I wasn't going out. I'd had enough of going to bars. I wasn't even going to restaurants much. We were sort of staying at home and we were just like, okay, let's give it a year. Go live in the countryside for a bit. Give it a year. See what happens. Yeah, and then I moved to the, the German countryside. We live like 30, 40 minutes outside Stuttgart in the middle of nowhere in a tiny little village. And there's not much else to do here, really, you know, other than I had a, got, I had space to set up a little studio for myself. And then that, that's when I really started to focus on, like, okay, let's try and make something. But I was obviously kept in touch with, with, with New York and James all the time. And I was, and then, of course, being the New York guy coming here, even though I'd quit DJing, as soon as I came here, I was the guy connected to DFA. So everyone would be trying to book James, couldn't get, could they try to book Juan? They couldn't afford to fly Juan over. And then the next guy, they'd try and book, they try and get me. <laughs> and I was still a Marcus Lampkin at this point, but I was still connected to, dfa somehow and then once i sort of and then i started making music and james was like okay come we you know you need to come to we mix it in dfa and you put it out on dfa and 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 that's that and then so as soon as i did that as soon as i put my first 12 out the wrong galaxy triumph 12 then that was then i was just back into djing again and like i said i was the dfa euro euro you know cheap cheap version so i just started (laughs) i just started getting gigs left right and center again and i just got really busy immediately and then it, it sort of took off again and then, uh, yeah, then I, like I said, I started really sort of knuckling down and making music every day and working on making an album and then eventually went back to New York to, to record and do that. But that was, that's what I've been doing ever since is, uh, I'm, I'm at home here working on music and I go back to New York as often as I can. Usually not this year, obviously, but usually, uh, you know, three or four times a year just to hang out or, or to record. So there's a point somewhere in this kind of mid period where quite a strange thing happens and Tim Goldsworthy sort of does a runner and never comes back from New York and then you get to uh 2011 and LCD Sound System have a gig at Madison Square Garden that James basically decides is going to be the last gig in fact and um this is quite a big deal for quite a lot of fans and um they make a movie about it because it's such a big deal I kind of wonder like did it feel at that point like a kind of end of an era to you? Because it's like, you know, a decade has gone by, New York has changed, the music has changed. How did the, how did you feel about that kind of moment? And was it a sort of transition in any way? I, I, to me, it, it really felt like, um, even though my parents had never divorced, it felt like the parents are divorcing. And I couldn't, I was still like on this upward trajectory of my career. Like I, 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 my goal has always been to have just a slow, steady upward trajectory instead of like, you know, a big moment of hype and then whatever. So I, 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 at that point still making records, like touring, you know, just nonstop DJing everywhere and having a great time. Like I, you know, I still, I, and I still do like, I love, I love all of it. So I, 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 and, and, and the sentiment like around LCD was kind of like, kind of like we're tired of doing this and let's just end it while on 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 a good note um and it felt to me like kind of like being abandoned both by like the band that was a centerpiece of uh of dfa and kind of by friends who i was like uh, you know i was feeling like um like 
I guess I'm going to be the, the the last one standing. Like everyone else had gotten like super into wine or something. <laughs> like I, I'm just into music. Like I, you know, I still like. Yeah, I, I, I just I couldn't relate to to not wanting to do it anymore. I mean, even to this day, like you know, I'm 52 and I still my favorite thing is well was uh, taking a bunch of drugs and going dancing until for two days somewhere. <laughs> um, and it it just so it it felt like. Um, yeah, it really felt like the end of something, like of a lot of things, like more, more, more than the band. Um, and, and, you know, and, and aside from that, like sort of stepping away from it, like they were just my favorite band. Like I would see them all the time. Like I've probably seen them like hundreds of times. Like, so you know, meet up with them on tour in Europe, but I'd be on tour and have some days off and I'd jump on the bus and, and go around with them and whatever. And I, I never got tired of seeing the band. Like, they're amazing. Like, if, if they weren't all my friends, I would still think they were one of the best live bands of all time. So, yeah, to me, it was a tough time. And, like, Jerry Fuchs, all, a very good friend of all, all all of ours and drummer in my live band, had died a couple of years earlier. And it felt and I, it felt like that was still resonate, you know, rippling through and resonating with everyone. Um, and all of it, yeah, it just felt like things kind of ending, and, it, and I found it really sad. Yeah. But it didn't end. <laughs> yeah, co- Coda, LCD sound system, live to fight another day, as we know. Um, yeah. I mean, I think any label that makes it beyond like the kind of crucial sort of five or six year mark, or any label that defines a kind of moment or a scene in the first place, I think always faces an inevitable, like maybe a dip or a change in direction or a kind of loss of energy and need to reframe in some way. And I guess that would have marked around that that moment for DFA. But, you know, that was already 10 years ago. So, I mean, how would you how would you define what is there a future for DFA? Is it at the end of its lifespan or is it kind of just going to be one of those labels like Warp or something that just goes on forever? I think I actually I think Warp is a great example and a, like a really admirable one, like still put out great music, but uh, you know, nobody, nothing in life can stay at a peak. Like a peak is a peak because yeah. it's higher than the norm. Um, but I think, yeah, it, it'll just get back to being like Marcus, James, you know, LCD, like the same group of friends putting records out every once in a while on, on the label. Do you think LCD will make another record? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, hey, here's a question though. Like, as well as the kind of uh, the, the the supposed hits or the the better, the slightly better known artists, uh, you guys and the Rapture and Holy Ghost and Hot Chip and Yacht and whatever. Um, there are a lot of other kind of stranger, weirder, and probably quite undersung records on the label. I, I just wanted to know if you have any kind of favorite DFA records that you think are a little bit undersung or never quite got there. Um, moment in the limelight that they deserved the the black leotard front record is always a a favorite of mine um i love that record but i mean i guess gavin urena did get you know some move on go on from there and get recognition but i love i always loved that record so much that was always a a very special record for me all that stuff was great and any of the gavin and delia stuff i loved i don't know if that gets that gets thrown around the way a lot of the other stuff does that stuff that was some of my favorite you face stuff too. One, I th- that's funny. I sorry to say that's my my same. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say the first thing I thought of was the um was the Gavin and Delia record. Yeah. Right, I think it's one of my. It's definitely in my top three DFA records of all time. What are the other two? <laughs> <laughs> 
It might be my favorite, actually. Um, Why do you think that one then? What What is it about that that's that's going to be the the highlight of the slightly lesser known ones? I mean, semi lesser known, I guess. Less likely to hear in a disco. Yeah, I don't know if it ever really got any traction at all. I don't. I don't know if anyone. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't have a sense that it ever made a big mm. impact. But I just love that. You know, I love arpeggiators. That kind of like endless meditative kind of <laughs> musical music form that it's in is Europe endless. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I only really have uh, one other question for you. I was thinking, I mean, to, to take us back to the, the nostalgia, um, and perhaps it just occurs to me more in this interview because, uh, of all the labels that, that we've, um, that I've talked to for this series of relevant parties, DFA is the one that is, and I don't think I even really thought about it until I was doing the research. DFA is the one that was always with me the whole time because I was the right age and it just came at the right moment. And I danced to all those songs when I was like 16, 17, 18 and whatever. And I have noticed that, uh, with this like Y2K revival that is underway, um, now it's generation Z, the zoomers who are having their like borrowed nostalgia for, for, uh, the unremembered noughties, I guess. Um, (laughs) And I wondered, like, what about that time would you like to be kind of remembered and revived as, like, precious and valuable? What what would you like the, the Zoomers to take from it? For me, it's um, the most sort of the, the, tr- the truly precious, magical thing about that time was um, truly living, like, your vision in, the, in this vision with your friends that uh, and, and now I'm going to reveal myself to be an older person um, <laughs> that was before social media. I mean, it, it just, it, yeah. it is true that without, you know, making like a sort of a, a, a value judgment about was it better then than now, the thing that is true is that you did things without the awareness of this lens of, I'll say like the lens of Instagram, like you did things without this constantly um, present uh, thing looking in at you. Um, so you could just, I, I think it was a magical time of just doing like crazy shit. And, and it could be special because nobody else really knew about it until it was ready to make an impact. Um, whereas now, you know, you could, some kid in China could start a party where, you know, everyone, you show everyone's naked or something. and It's a naked party. And the next day, the world knows about it. You know, it's just not like that. That to me is the magic of that time. Marcus, what would you say? Uh, yeah, I guess I have to agree. Yeah, I mean, it was such a small little capsule of, yeah, I don't know. I remember, like, you know, and we did flyers and we promoted things you know we dropped off flyers in record stores and you know we remember we had funny ones that just said hey i'm playing at Banfar on tuesday you know um and that was it you know and it was you said word of mouth like our first parties were word of mouth you know and it was this tiny little little capsule thing that you know had like they had time to grow and and sort of you know work stuff out 
um, and you did crazy stuff, but you didn't have to. You didn't have to worry. Our Halloween parties were at Plant Bar were always amazing. Everybody was dressed up, and you weren't worried about whatever. And and the same, you know, I don't know. It just seemed like, yeah, I, I, the same with as Juan said. You know, I don't want to feel like the super old guy, even though like we are old. But a uh, um, but I also think it's very telling, like what you said. Like it's the same distance now back to the early DFA as it was from then back to ESG and liquid liquid and it's kind of it's coming around again so I don't know maybe you know there is there is hope I, I think from that time I think something like we also touched on a little bit like once say now with the dance music now the way it's all genre driven and you go to a club and it plays that genre and you make a song and it's it, it gets put into a certain genre and back then as well as when I first got into dance music was the, you know, the, the, the acid house scene or whatever in the late eighties, it was just, you know, and I, again, I'm going to, I know I'm going to make myself sound old by saying it was very anything goes. You, 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 they played music across the board and, and the same then you went to a club and you heard, you know, electro, you heard hip hop, um, and you heard techno and house all mixed together. And that was the same thing that you would hear at plant bar, whatever. In the noughties, and and you know, I think that also might happen with what we're in right now with this whole you know lockdown situation and quarantining. That I think people are going to be hopefully so excited that when they get back to get when they're allowed to go out again, and I think hopefully as well that people get the, the chance to DJ again. It's going to be like, oh my god, I can't wait! I've got all this stuff I want to play, and I got to make it all get into these whatever few hours I have. <laughs> That you know, I think you know, maybe we're heading for a nice little revival again. You know, in a good, in the in the best sense. Yeah, there's no time for genre purism. If you haven't played a gig for a year, you've got to play like <laughs> everything in four hours. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I do wonder if it will be. Um, I don't know. It's it seems unwise to put too much hope in in the comeback given the current situation. But yeah. I can't help but think that there are going to be some some more half decent parties ahead of us. I think I think so. You don't have to I'm retire, Juan. <laughs> no, I'm very hopeful. I, I, I think it's going to be better than ever. Well, that is a great prediction on which to end a, a very enjoyable hour or so of talking to you. Thank you so much for giving me your time. That was really fascinating. Yeah. Thanks for having us. No problem. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Relevant Parties from Carhartt Work in Progress. If you want to dive into more music from the labels in this series, check out the Relevant Parties playlist on Spotify. You can find the link in the show notes. And remember, you can subscribe to Relevant Parties so that you never miss an episode. It's available wherever good podcasts are found. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to know what you think. So thanks for listening and join me next time for more stories behind the world's best record labels. 